to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to the bar for another Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm your host this week, Rick Lee, and as usual, I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Charles Peterson and Lee Johnson. And then we have a special surprise, which we'll wait for a second before we introduce the surprise. But Noelle is standing by and she wants to know, Charles, what are you drinking? And I want to know, what are you ranting or raving about? There is a great ballroom next door to the bar and there's a Barbadian wedding happening. And I'm going to go with some rum punch. If you've never had rum punch, it's a regular, it's a default drink. If you travel to the Caribbean, it's so amazing, so sweet, so good, and will get you really drunk. So I'll be having a rum punch. Thank you, Noel. I am raving today, and my rave is honest and clear political speech. In honor of the Black Caucus of the Michigan Legislative House, I'm going to rave fantastic for them because their response to the official overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court was, and I quote, this is some bullshit. So (laughs) (laughs) it is on wax. That is their official statement. You can look it up online. So I'm going to rave for the Black Caucus of the Michigan State Legislature for keeping it 100% real. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, this week I am going to have one of my favorite summer drinks that I invented a couple of summers ago, which I call a fresquila. It's tequila and fresca. I tried it out on Charles. He wasn't a big fan, but let me tell the rest of you that it's really, really good. (laughs) No, no. no. We can have a whole podcast about that debate. No. (laughs) Today I'm actually raving, and my rave is apropos of today's topic. Today I am raving about this new meme on TikTok, which goes... She's a seven, but. Now, basically the way the meme works is that people will say something like, she's a seven, but her favorite author is Dostoevsky. Or he's a eight, but he still lives with his mom, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you're supposed to re-rank them. My wife and I started playing this <laughs> after we heard it for the first time. And I was like, she's a 10, but she's MAGA. <laughs> and we were like zero. You know? <laughs> or she was a 10, but she was at January 6th. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, I really like it because it's a roundabout way of asking people what their type is. All right, so today, our surprise that Rick mentioned earlier was that we have a special guest with us, Drew Barron. Drew is the creator of Rocket Boom and also the meme database site, Know Your Meme. So perfect guest for today because today's topic is memes. Drew holds a BA in philosophy from Bates College and an MFA in design and technology from the Parsons School of Design, where he also taught classes for a while. So Drew, welcome to Hotel Bar Sessions, and we'd like to know what you're drinking and what you're ranting or raving about today. Thanks. All right. I'm really psyched to be here. Today, I am drinking a Shirley Temple, and I'm not embarrassed by that. (laughs) Actually, if I have more than a shot or two of liquor, I'll start throwing up. Uh, so, oh. <laughs> so I can enjoy it sometimes, but it takes a long time. I have to sip it. But anyway, my rant today is about how local journalism is falling apart. 
I find that it's a much more serious problem than people are aware of, and that it's not just about the stories that aren't being told in local communities, but it's about a lot of bigger problems than that. So anyway, I wish more people were paying attention. That's a good one. That's a great Rick, one. Rick, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about this week? I am going to have a gimlet, but in honor of being in Poland, I'll have a vodka gimlet. A vimlet? <laughs> a vimlet. The only thing that drink is missing is Fresca. <laughs> oh, didn't Drew say something about throwing up? <laughs> <laughs> and apropos of that, today I am raving about the city of Krakow. This is just a remarkable city. It has a really quaint and vibrant old city. You know, I've been staying about a couple of blocks outside of the old city, and there have been festivals almost every day. And unlike in Chicago, where there are a lot of festivals, none of these you have to pay for. And so people are outside, they're going to festivals, they're sitting in cafes, they're sitting in parks, and Krakow is just a really wonderful city. So, Lee, I know we're talking about memes today, but what did you have in mind? Well, Rick, you know, one does not simply podcast about memes. (laughs) 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 But today we're going to do it. So, you know, memes occur in many forms, symbols, practices, ideas, gestures, etc. And they become viral in part because they rely on imitation but also because they're transmissible and adaptive. So they mutate and they self-replicate in response to particular environmental pressures. Internet memes are just one sub-variety of memes, and I'm really glad that we have Drew here as an expert on that today, but it's a ubiquitous variety. So today I want us to talk about what makes a thing or an idea or a symbol memeable. Why do we love memes so much? When and how do memes die? And perhaps most importantly, are memes value neutral? That is, what goods do they forward and what harms can they cause? So today, we're talking about memes. Let's talk about first, what is a meme? So the word meme is, I think we all know, a neologism created by Richard Dawkins. It comes from his 1976 book, The Selfish Gene, where he used it as a kind of, well, you know, there's a lot of debate about this. He either used it as a parallel term to like a phoneme or a grapheme, that is the smallest unit of language, or he used it as an abbreviation of the Greek term for imitation, mimesis, But the idea that Dawkins was trying to put forward was that memes were the basic unit of cultural evolution in a similar way to genes being the basic unit of biological evolution. So first, I'm wondering whether or not this parallelism between cultural systems, information systems, and biological systems, whether or not we think that really works. I think the comparison is really on to something. Even if we think about the origin of this in relation to mimesis, or if we think about it in relation to like a phoneme or a grapheme, that is in terms of a smallest unit, in both cases, there is this element of repeatability. It is that very repeatability that allows for sometimes subtle, sometimes drastic variations in each iteration 
of the repetition. So I think it captures two things at once, namely the repetition and the possibility of variation within the repetition. Memes do have the ability to be able to replicate based upon or identifying or fitting into the proper conditions for their survival and for them to maintain and then continue. There is something to the parallel comparison between genetic replication and memetic replication. I agree with y'all. I think there's absolutely something to it. It's an interesting time to be standing here while this idea is just taking hold because I don't think anybody really knows quite what's behind it or how deep it goes. Mm. But it's a very interesting study because even the practical scenario of passing ideas on from one generation to the next and how that once the next generation has it, it influences that generation. It can even have clear influence over its biology. So there's definitely a connection there. But Drew, you raise an interesting point that I never thought about, and that is, so you initially talked about passing on ideas to the next generation. And I would never call, for example, the belief in the isolated individual a meme, but maybe it is a meme. Maybe I've been thinking in the wrong way that there are substantive ideas that are not memes versus, you know, suddenly I can't think of a single meme. Um, <laughs> Rickroll. <laughs> so passing on the idea that freedom attaches to an isolated individual, I would have initially said is completely different than, for example, Rickrolling. But now you're making me think that I should think those in at least closer proximity if not even more similar than that. So I would think about religions as memes, any type of idea that's contagious, any idea that gets locked into someone's way of thinking and can be perpetuated and spread. I do think that we need to make a distinction between memes and ideologies, which I think are more mm. complex and which involve memes. So I might say something like the isolated individual is a meme, that over time, as our material living conditions have changed, as we moved from agrarian societies to mercantile and trade and capitalist societies, as religions were formed in our cultural formations, families changed, that meme, the isolated individual, adapted to each of these new mm. formations. Mm. So as cultures evolved, that meme became useful in passing along to these new adaptations. And in that sense, I do think Dawkins was onto something. In Dawkins' account, it's not as if evolution happens by one species battling with another species. Right. We're just the vehicles for evolution, and evolution is happening at a much more rudimentary level at the level of genes. And so maybe this parallel does hold up in some senses in that it gives us a way of explaining adaptation, change, maybe evolution, even in the progressive sense, in cultural formations with reference to these units that either adapt or die. You know, speaking of the word contagious, I think that's an ideal word to use because so many definitions of the word meme and so many different uses depend on that contagious aspect of what a meme is. Let me speak practically with my example for a moment. When I have an idea and I mention it to somebody, if it's a really bad idea, like what I had for breakfast and it was really <laughs> awful and not interesting... When I tell that next person about it, they're not going to be inspired to pass it on. You know, it'll just end right there. So you would say, 
I had an idea, I passed it on to the next, but then it stopped and it didn't go anywhere. And in a way, by not even making it one step, it wasn't contagious, basically. Maybe contagious is not the right adjective we want to use here because something can be very contagious, but if it isn't in an environment where it can replicate itself and find a new home, then no matter how contagious it is, it's not going to survive. And so I think one of the things that we can see is that what memes are is useful, adaptable, and resilient to the environmental changes. And if we think about it in relation to genes, I wouldn't say that my genes are contagious. I would say they're heritable, which is different from contagion. Maybe contagious is more of something that you notice in retrospect after the success. But if you think about, well, what is not contagious then? I mean, I'll give you an example of something that's not contagious. My sense of myself is absolutely not contagious because it's absolutely not adaptable. It cannot leave me and still be what it is. Go deeper with that, Lee. Yeah, that's a good one. So my sense of myself, like in Latin, we might say ipsaity. I can't communicate that to anyone except for by analogy, in which case it stops being my sense of myself, but something that is similar to your sense of yourself. And once it leaves me, so if I could technologically transplant my sense of myself into your brain, either you would become me and then I would cease being me or it wouldn't translate. But is it possible that you have particular signs or affects that translate, if not the actual sense of yourself, that still is able to articulate to others how you think about yourself. And then those things can be copied or imitated by other people who see you like, you know, your sense of style. That sense of style says something about how you regard yourself. And then someone may like that and say, hey, I'm going to start dressing like Lee. And then in that way, that person has become susceptible to the idea of yourself that you have, if not the actual idea that you contain within. Yeah, I think all of those things that you're mentioning are memeable things because they can be imitated, they can be repeated, they can be adapted to new environments. But this one thing, my sense of myself, is not memeable. At least with today's current technology. (laughs) Well, we would go way down a rabbit hole. (laughs) Yeah, let's not go there. Danger, danger, (laughs) Will Robinson. (laughs) As Andrew said, in hindsight, we realize something becomes contagious. Continuing with the biological metaphor, it seems that what allows for a meme to go viral for it continuing with this language to infect people's consciousness is the fact that there may be some type of cultural, social, psychological, mental openness or vulnerability that makes a person much more open to being invaded by the contagion. So for whatever reason, the idea of the isolated individual may strike certain people in a certain way because of their emotional, mental, political, cultural state. And then they can consciously or unconsciously embrace it and then begin to work in replication of the meme. But Charles, isn't that just to say that because we're social, we're necessarily open to being infected? Another way to talk about infection is to say, I want to be together with you. I want to share a language, a culture in common. And that's just what it means to be social. And so I think the conditions for sociality are the very conditions for memeability. 
if I can, I want to say yes and. and. I'm glad you brought up the question of the conditions under which a meme can spread and replicate itself. But I'm not sure if the conditions necessarily make it so that that spread is going to happen and there's still something about the individual that is a further step than just being social that allows for them to become subject to the meme. Now who's been infected by the isolated individual meme? <laughs> yeah, I think I might disagree here because I don't think that it's the isolated individual that makes it possible for memes to become viral, just to stick with the biological language. What allows memes to become viral are environments, whether those are social environments or political environments or natural environments. You have to have conditions that the meme can either adapt to or not adapt to. No, what to. I'm saying is that individuals within a group, within an environment, are not necessarily going to be infected by it. So let's say this. You know, since Christianity is a meme that always pops into my head, so you have this early community of first century Christians. There are people in that community who do not buy into what what these early disciples are telling them about this person. They're not buying into the idea of a resurrected God. They're not buying into the idea of eternal life. Not everybody is going to buy into that. Not everybody is susceptible to that. Not everybody wants to hear that or will believe in it, despite the fact that they still all exist within the conditions that allow for the initial idea to take hold among some people in the community. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It is true that there will always be people who are going to be resistant to the uptake of memes, just like there are people who are resistant to the uptake of other yeah. genetic mutations. But there have to be enough people that an environment conducive to the survival and perpetuation and repetition of the meme has to be present in order for the meme to be viral. I guess maybe I would like to frame it this way as more of a proposal to the expert committee as opposed to something that I already have conviction in. <laughs> <laughs> but back to this idea a little bit about what exactly is a meme then. We agree that it involves the component of an idea and that it involves or somehow requires so is dependent upon an environment the idea will spread through. What do you think about the definition containing something that's a little more complex? It's not just simply an idea that was successful. Like if we look back at something that was contagious and we say, okay, well, Let's look at this because this looks like a stereotypical meme. And you try to identify what are the components of a meme specifically. It seems to me that it does involve necessarily one, an idea, two, a successful scenario where it passed on. So that means if it didn't pass on, being an idea in and of itself is not enough. Right. To your example, Lee, it works when you think about it in terms of your own self and how difficult it would be to take that whole package. <laughs> you know, it's not very memeable. <laughs> but then at what point does it finally become a meme? Like how far does it have to go from one generation or to two generations? Or do we have to have some kind of a committee that agrees as to where the threshold is? First of all, I think it's funny to think about the meme panel. Remember like death panels that everybody used to talk about? <laughs> so this is where I think maybe going back to Dawkins might be useful because Dawkins' basic definition of a meme is a cultural unit of information. So it has to be cultural. And of course, we don't have a culture panel either that can tell us, you know, when something constitutes a cultural formation. So that's an interesting question. Like how wide does something have to spread before it becomes a cultural unit of information? Information. Maybe implicitly it might have to involve an idea, like in the way that we might say art 
implicitly involves an idea, but as a vague signified, not necessarily an idea like the isolated individual or something like that. So I just read in the New York Times, it was actually in their chess column. And I should start this by saying I hate chess. I think it's one of the most boring games I've ever seen. (laughs) But it was the story about how the piece that we now call the Queen first of all, came to be called the queen, and secondly, became the most powerful piece on the board. Apparently, for most of the history of chess, well, I don't know by this point most, but up until the 15th century, the queen could only move one square in any direction diagonally. And then it turns out in Spain, because of Queen Isabella, we think, The queen first became called the queen and then secondly started developing these more powerful and complex ways of moving. And now worldwide, the queen moves in all of these different directions and is the most powerful piece on the board. This is a game. And there is a cultural unit of information that, yes, if you asked me, I could say the idea behind this would be something like honoring Isabella as a queen and so on. And yet its contagion is not explained in terms of that idea, but it does spread because obviously there's an environment for it. Yeah, and it makes the game more interesting. I mean, I know you don't think the game is interesting (laughs) at all, but it does make the game more interesting. I think that's such a great example, Rick, because exactly as you say, the environment of chess, the actual game, provides for this meme to become viral because it is an environment in which that adaptation makes a stronger game. Good thing Anne Boleyn wasn't the queen that influenced the game. (laughs) (laughs) That'd been a whole different thing. Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. All right, Drew, so part of the reason that we invited you here today is that you are the creator of Know Your Meme. But before we start talking about internet memes, can you give us the story of how you started Know Your Meme? Sure. Well, I've always been really interested in internet culture and have found myself to identify a lot with it from very early on, like even before the web. I had the first BBSs and, you know, it goes way back to early modem days and stuff like that. And so... (laughs) I've been in that environment, which originally was quite small and manageable, something that you can see. And as the internet has grown and the world has become connected, I've watched and participated a lot. And so I found what was most interesting to me was really that environment, the environment in which things spread around. You know, when you have a very small, closed environment like the internet, something that's also more easy to sort of see, like you can see things moving around and watch how they go. 
starting to study how ideas were spreading through it just became very interesting to me. People call it viral, but I didn't really like that word because it seems to have kind of a negative connotation. Mm. So that's been my main interest. And then starting to notice patterns about how information spreads around. And then through my company, Rocket Boom, we were basically reporting on daily internet culture news. And so memes were often popping up as what was the most interesting. And what was interesting about it was not just that it was fun and funny, but how it came to be. So what year did you start Know Your Meme? Oh my gosh, this is so fresh in my mind and yet so far away. (laughs) Basically, it just evolved out of Rocket Boom. It started in 2007 and grew into itself by filling a need that became apparent. It was apparent that at the time, the word meme really had a terrible connotation. It was used almost exclusively on sites like 4chan. Hmm. And I thought it would be really important for people to understand that there's a lot more behind it. It's not just crummy X-rated matter. There's something very serious going on. Also, there's a lot of fun to it. So... You know, the news of memes is itself mimetic. (laughs) It was easy to perpetuate itself out of that environment and sort of introduce it in more of an academic way to start having people think about it in those ways. And because Rocket Boom itself was popular at the time, it acted as a hub that enabled that idea to get noticed. Drew, I'm interested to know that in the early days of the internet, when, as you said, there were BBSs and a lot of communication, well, especially among geeks through IRC, it probably was relatively easy to track the origin and spread of memes. And then once the web no longer had like a front page where you could see everything on it, it must have become much more difficult to track the origin and spread of memes. Actually, I see the internet environment itself in which memes spread as something that has gone through some systematic eras in the same way that an art movement might go through an era. So we have that sort of pre-web era where you're right, it's a lot easier to track, but also not everybody had the knowledge to understand how to track all those things. So the tools weren't as easy. But then the web 1.0, you know, which led to the dot-com boom, it was the shopping cart that really defined web 1.0 because it brought the economy on. But still during that period, even though it had become big, billions of dollars of industry and Google and Yahoo, actually it was still small enough to where you could see a lot of clear aspects to it because while there were a lot of users, there weren't quite as many publishers. So there wasn't as Mm. much information being produced. And then the web 2.0 era This is where I think memes really were able to take hold because Web 2.0 is defined by enabling people with the tools to self-publish. And so you have people with blogs and doing podcasting and it's the democratization of the various mediums, text being democratized with blogging. You've got TV and film being democratized. You've got music, all of that opened up. 
But even still, throughout Web 2.0, it was quite trackable, I would say. In other words, the Mm. tools were really coming in to play to be able to understand what was going on in the environment. And the environment of self-publishing was being held together through protocols like RSS and things like that. So if you remember a site like Technorati, Mm -hmm. it was an interesting way to get a hold of what was going on, you know, and you can go from there. And then the end of all of this didn't go well because it ended up being consolidated where we have these silos like Facebook and Twitter. And this has really destroyed how memes spread organically because the algorithms and the competition and the elements that are at play in the environment now are designed to kind of keep memes from spreading in many ways. It's really terrible in the way that the environment gives preference to popularity, but not necessarily what's, you know, the better idea. And so Web3, that word was recently hijacked by crypto community when they say Web3, but that's (laughs) not really like the next era, the Web3 era. That's the semantic web. If you've ever seen Her, that movie, it's an ideal example and worth going back and looking again at today to see how this next phase of the web's going to be where computers and artificial intelligence are much more involved. And so anyway, that will, of course, also again change how the environment gets laid out. But so I think now the problem is, and ultimately to your question, We're at the end of this Web 2.0 phase where everything is consolidated into these social platforms. And it's so easy for somebody to get onto Twitter and blurt out something and also act as a vessel for other memes to spread, but that they're spreading within these algorithms that are totally unfair. I have a kind of practical question. At this point now, given that Facebook and Instagram, sorry, same thing, (laughs) Facebook and Twitter have billions and billions and billions of users, how do you vet a site like Know Your Meme now? First of all, I'm not involved in the site anymore. I ended up selling it many years ago. So how they run it today, I wouldn't be a good spokesperson for exactly what they do now. I suppose what's behind my question is two things. One, how do you know that a meme is a meme? So it certainly is the case that in order for a meme to be a meme, it has to involve some culturally specific references. So you have to get it in order for it to be a meme. And there's always going to be communities that are going to get it and communities that are not going to get it to repeat a current TikTok meme, right? Like if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, you don't. But the second question is, how do you filter out memes? Obviously, I'm thinking here of like Pepe the Frog. I know you're not running the site anymore, but are there reasons to say there are some memes that don't need to be signal boosted? That's how I feel. And when I ran the site, I would purposefully not include certain memes that were clearly memes because the content was pornographic or Mm. too racist to be interesting, really, Uh, even if it's popular. Oh, my God. I love that criticism. It's too (laughs) racist to be interesting. I'm I'm totally going to use that in the future. (laughs) That's like half the Senate. (laughs) That's optimistically. That's optimistic. But, you know, back in the day, whenever I made a decision like that and decided to run the site, 
I was always, of course, standing there saying, this is my site and I'm deciding what to do. And this isn't a free speech website for everybody to come and do whatever they want. I'm going to do it this way. And if you want somewhere else to go to add in what you're calling a meme, which, you know, I'll agree with you, it's a meme. It has the qualities of a meme, but I just don't want to hear. So that's your business if you want to go do it somewhere else. That's just part of typical internet culture boundaries that everybody has to set up for themselves, I think. I just wanted to say that I really appreciate the turn toward the question of the ethics of memes and sharing memes. If you are in charge of a site, an archive, and saying, no, that is harmful or that is insulting or that is damaging or that is dangerous to an individual or particular population. And as the private owner of this, I can make that decision. And I think that's a powerful statement in the face of the ways in which First Amendment rights have been misunderstood by a lot of people mm-hmm. who are on the web and saying, well, I get to say this, I get to say that because First Amendment and not just individuals, but those who may own sites and say, well, we can't really be critical or really can't ban or we can't eliminate or take this off because we're violating the principle of First Amendment rights and not being honest and saying the government has an obligation to protect First Amendment rights. But there's no law that says inherently I get to send out Pepe memes on a website because I'm a citizen. That's not a right. And that's not the private sector's role or obligation to protect freedom of speech. That's a public interest, not necessarily a private one. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the negatives of having an internet environment that is centralized into these big companies like Facebook and Twitter is because they're, of course, trying to make money for their shareholders, and they're so large at that money level that they're out on the fringes of trying to find out what's legal as opposed to just deciding what's moral. Once you go back to a decentralized area where people have their own blogs and their own websites and things are smaller communities that kind of own themselves, then you see a, a better environment, I think, where people are much more free to use those types of ethics for their websites. They realize suddenly that it's up to them. Each person's group is not a free speech space. You know, I was going to ask you, what, if anything, do you think is different about internet memes as opposed to memes like we were talking about them in the first section? But I think some of what you just said is getting to at least one difference, which is that unlike memes as, in Dawkins' terms, cultural units of information, internet memes are existing in an environment in which big social media silo companies have these algorithms that are effectively putting their thumbs on the scale of what actually can spread what is adaptable and survivable in a certain environment. But do you see any other things that are kind of unique to internet memes as opposed to other kinds of memes? Yeah, exactly what you mentioned, being somewhat of a subset of the larger idea of the actual internet itself. I mean, the internet itself is this sort of environment that allows the ideas to spread so fluidly in a way that they couldn't have possibly spread before. Prior to the internet, if you had a good idea and you wanted to tell somebody you were at the grocery store and you told them and then they wanted to tell their cousin, they would have to go write a letter, you know, (laughs) and then it would take two days to get there. (laughs) Or if you had a cool video, you would have to have a double video deck you know, or a DVD burner or something like this. And it was just so difficult for ideas from somebody to get around. Or even if you had a popular idea, 
and you were a popular person like a president, getting your idea out still required a very limited set of points in which to enter in their ideas to then spread through newspapers and magazines, but that was about it. But now with the internet, the fact that everybody's connected with a phone, billions of people have theoretical access to instantly obtain the same idea at the same moment is what's so different and unique. I want to put some emphasis on your use of the word theoretical there, because I think this goes back to your point about algorithms. So many people have theoretical access But I have to say that, you know, I have a TikTok account. I hardly look at it, but sometimes I do. I look at it for both of us. (laughs) I know. Well, for all four of us. You're looking at it now, Lee. (laughs) I have a Twitter account and I follow, you know, selected numbers of people. And most of the things that are memes, I hear about from other sources. I listened to a podcast called In Case You Missed It, and most of the time I did Mm. miss it. (laughs) So this is how I hear about memes because the algorithms on Facebook, on Twitter, on TikTok are not feeding it to me. I think one of the benefits of TikTok is they're really upfront about this, that it's not like my page or my feed. What is it called, Lee? For you? For your page. Yeah. FYP. TikTok's for your page at least openly admits, hey, we're surfacing this for your page. You didn't ask for it. It's not because you're following these people. And so there is something interesting, I think, right now at our very moment in which memes are both, on the one hand, easier to produce and on the other hand, less easy to produce. Yep, there's formula, but then you can try the formula and ask yourself, like, why didn't my scenario match the formula? Sure. And then you see the overlords are there. There's other reasons, too. That's just one of them, but that's one of the most severe ones, I think. So, Drew, you laid out a scenario where, on the one hand, we had internet in the literal sense. Here's a net, there's a net, and there's something connecting these, and these nets are now talking to one another. And this is pre-web. This is even pre-web 1.0. And then we jump ahead to our current situation in which we have these silos. And I'm wondering, do you think in between there, something like federation isn't a good solution? Something like Twitter, so I have in mind Mattermost or some of these social networks in which different people could host their own and they can talk to one another like old BBSs could cross-communicate, yet the owner of each hosted site in the Federation could choose not to federate with some or federate with others. Do you think Federation is something that could be in the middle that wouldn't be the algorithm by, as you put it, the overlords, and not also the difficult-to-navigate situation of the old BBSs and IRC and so on. Oh, for sure. I think it did work quite well just like that through protocols. So instead of using these tools that are owned by Twitter and Facebook, for example, that was where they sort of came in and just sucked everybody out by making it just so easy and so free 
to just sign up when they knew nothing. But as soon as you go back to this scenario and environment where you're using protocols that nobody actually owns, but everybody agrees this is how it's going to go, <laughs> like email <laughs> or RSS, these types of things, then yeah, the technology is there. It's just market forces at play. Mm. You know, one other thing that is, I have to say, really interesting about internet memes and thinking about memes on the internet specifically is being able to track things through the environment. It does take me back in philosophical terms to Hume's pool table, where mm. you have this situation where you hit the cue ball and the moment that that cue ball has been hit, whatever's going to happen next with the balls is pretty much going to happen. Sure, there could be somebody standing on the side who throws their beer mug into the pool table <laughs> and throws it all off. As Rick is wont to do. I've been to that bar. <laughs> but then you can see that and you can calculate it because it's kind of unusual or it's something that's pretty clearly on the outside of the environment because the pool table itself, it's such a confined environment, mm. you know, for that example. And so I think that's what the internet offers in terms of being able to study how ideas spread. It does offer that kind of an environment. It is absolutely connected and spills over into all the other environments, but it's a lot easier to see when those anomalies happen and that those anomalies lead us into more information because they just appear to be anomalies, but they're actually part of the dynamic system that it's all connected to. That's a really interesting example because what you're talking about is basically wouldn't it be helpful if we understood the physics of information mm. or the physics of human sociality? And I think this is where it gets really problematic because, as we all know, the algorithms are a lot better at recognizing patterns and predicting behaviors than any of us are. And so if we really did want to understand the Internet and the spread of information on the Internet as a kind of physics, we have to rely on machine intelligence to do that. You know, there's another force at play that's organic, that's not necessarily a market force or evil by nature, but that corrupts everything. And that is what I like to call hubs of information in the environment. That would be something like a really popular website or a popular information hub source like the New York Times. Mm -hmm. When the New York Times puts out information, they have that initial advantage of a platform that their information is going to be consumed and considered and picked through in a way where if they have something mimetic that gets pushed out, it's a much more viable launch pad than trying to mm. put out the same exact idea without that. The New York Times is a bigger, more global brand platform that's made for that in a way. But you also have these people that are popping up just individual people who have really extreme ideas. We're looking at you, Joe Rogan. <laughs> exactly. That's, I mean, he's the most extreme person and he has such a popular audience. So he's kind of like this self-perpetuating, self-aggrandizing hub where anything that goes through and good or bad is going to get out there unfairly in a way, just because this one guy has his platform now. Yeah. So those types of things are, I think, in a way also natural and just part of human culture. And there will be people who will be more popular who will have the ability to force out their ideas or to have their ideas become more successful 
and more contagious just because of that pre-established mm. spec, you know, and that that's something that also is trackable and you can take note of and calculate. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. I think most of the time when we think about memes, we all understand that they're frequently used to amplify or to signal boost certain ideas or issues. But what are some of the ways in which memes can be harmful? You know, there's an interesting study. If you look into the algorithms, like, for example, how Facebook obviously rewards people who get more likes and reposts. You know, there's obviously just stirring people up and making comments and using media in order to get a reaction causes more likes. And so Mm -hmm. trying to find the edge of where is too much. And the study was about their algorithm. They figured out a lot of those simple mechanisms and they use them like politically here in Colorado. There's a woman named Lauren Boebert who purposefully puts out memes just to strike a reaction that's so obvious, like on Christmas She put out a picture of her family and all of her kids holding guns, you know, in front of the Christmas tree, these semi-automatic weapons and stuff, like a little young kids, like, happy Christmas card. (laughs) How else are you going to show you love Jesus? (laughs) The Prince of Pieces. (laughs) But who would put that out there not knowing what was going to (laughs) happen? She used that in order to strike a chord in people knowing that it was going to be something that would go out onto the fringe and Mm. it did and of course trump was an expert at that it would be nice if we could somehow show that to people and expose that a lot more because sometimes it's so obvious and blatant you know it's frustrating the algorithm pays whether i'm doom scrolling and hate watching or whether someone is liking and passing it on Because it's an attention economy. And if I'm paying attention because I hate, they get just as much credit for me hating them as they do for everyone else loving them or anyone else loving them. Yeah, you're still on the platform. Yeah, I'm still watching. It's not a healthy type of environment at all. And I think there may be something to be said about the injection of negativity or hate or anger into that flow. I think there's something thrilling for many about the provocation of it. There's something excitingly disruptive about hearing people say things that quote unquote normally would not be said or thinking thoughts out loud that we're told at least at one point in society are not acceptable things to say out loud. That cutting against the grain of what was once considered normative social protocols or behaviors is what adds to the thrill of it, is what attracts so many likes. I miss normative social behaviors. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Yeah, it's also, I mean, it's so dumbed down and simple. Hey, you got a like or you got a retweet Mm. or you got somebody who said something in 10 words and that's as deep as it goes. 
So it's such a surface level set of indicators to determine what's going to fly and what's not. Often by the time a meme gets to the point where we might recognize it as doing real harm, it's too late. I'm thinking obviously here of Pepe the Frog. So Pepe the Frog is this image that I believe originally appeared on 4chan. It might have been an actual comic book, but it was adopted on 4chan and became a symbol of white supremacists, of alt-right ideologues and demagogues, and has since, I think, been banned by most of the major social media platforms. But by the time that those ideologies became associated with Pepe the Frog, Pepe the Frog was already a viral meme. Right. So it was too late to stop it. No one would have looked at his image of this frog from the get-go and said, this clearly is going to be taken up as a white supremacist <laughs> frog. Right. So it was just hard to see. However, I do think that there are also examples of positive ways that memes can be used. And I think Kenya is actually a really good example here. So Kenya has the highest use of mobile devices of any country on the African continent. In Kenya, it is often the case that memes are used as a relatively safe Mm. way of expressing political dissent. And it's become a force in Kenyan culture. And I think that we see that as well in the United States, but not quite to the same extent. But we can definitely see ways that memes are positive. Yeah. I've also heard recently from the new owner of Know Your Meme, I've read an article where he was mentioning that the type of meme culture that we have here in the United States isn't so well adopted around the world. The thing that worries me, though, is this false sense of people being able to hide behind it as if they're actually safe so that when they're actually putting their memes out, feeling as if this is the layer that will keep them from the government coming after them in some way, that things are a lot more trackable than people assume. Like even the group Anonymous isn't really anonymous. It's just a matter of whether or not somebody wants to go look for them. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, but I don't know if it's a pure, safe environment just yet. Part of the features which makes it so challenging, the feature of memes, is the layering, is the masking, the ways in which it can speak to very specific groups in full view of a larger public that doesn't really know what's going on yet. I think Pepe's white supremacist, but I think it's specifically anti-Semitic. But at the same time, you may have oppositional groups against oppressive governments using that mask and using a secret language for the moment in order to convey ideas to those who are already in the know. As you said, Lee, in the previous segment, if you know, you know. I actually have an example of this, the way that it makes a difference whether or not you get it with a meme or whether or not you don't get it. I don't know. I want to say this is maybe five or six years ago. There was a meme going around on Twitter and probably Facebook, too, because it's a meme (laughs) where people would say something and then they would say, like, me and then quote themselves, me, I'm recording a podcast. And then underneath that, they would say, NCAA athlete. I recorded 12 podcasts before I drank my energy juice this morning, and now I've pumped 400 pounds. And then there would be these, like, you know, muscle emojis and stars and hearts and the celebration (laughs) popper, et cetera. And it was a joke. It was a joke about how NCAA athletes can sometimes be hyperbolic about the way they describe their accomplishments. Okay, so that was the meme that was going around. I was out for dinner one night with some friends. We were sitting on the patio at a Mexican restaurant having margaritas, Mm. (laughs) and they had that bar trivia going on. And so we started playing, and we won. 
I tweeted me. I just had a margarita and one trivia at whatever restaurant it was. And then I put underneath that NCAA athlete. I had five margaritas, got a PhD, and also bench pressed 400 pounds at this restaurant. <laughs> and then I Okay. It was funny, right? But about two weeks later, I got called in by my department chair and my dean because a student had made a complaint and provided a copy of this tweet and said that it was evidence that I had a prejudice against student athletes. Now, here's the problem. If you know, you know. (laughs) And if you don't know, you don't know. And you know who it's hard to explain Twitter jokes to? A dean. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, it was one of those things. It was very frustrating because if you don't know it, it's not hard to look at it. And it looks like I'm making fun of student athletes. I mean, I think we could say the same thing about Pepe the Frog. There was a good amount of time there where people didn't know that Pepe the Frog was a symbol of white supremacist ideologies in the same way that there was a time when people didn't recognize that okay sign that the Proud Boys make as a symbol. You know, all of these sorts of things, they are in many ways insider information. And in that sense, to go all the way back to the top of the episode, that's what I think Dawkins means by a unit of cultural information. But in that sense, Lee, my question would be, are they contagious? Because there's a way in which the okay sign, it wasn't making people into white supremacists. It had to be explained to the out group in order for then other people to say, we're not going to show this anymore. We're not going to spread this meme. We're not going to be part of the contagion. We're going to put our masks on. We're going to social distance from the meme. But other than people calling attention to the out community, it would have been entirely internal to that community in a way that I don't think would have done any harm or made any mischief. But I don't think that that's evidence against its virality. So I think the same thing happened with the Let's Go Brandon chant, that a lot of people, I was one of those people, I was like, why do they keep saying Let's Go Brandon? Somebody had to explain it to me. And of course, you know, I'm like, that's stupid because it is stupid. (laughs) But it served the function that it was supposed to serve, which was to identify people as members of a cultural community or as not members of the cultural community. And to the extent that it serves that function, that cultural function, it is viral. There's a self-healing process, I think, that goes on with that as well, where, like with the Pepe scenario, it's being used, it's mimetic, it's crossing into all kinds of different communities, but then it gets adopted and becomes popular with this one community. And because that particular adoption becomes so strong, it causes the other communities to basically stop using it and they understand. And so that's kind of like part of that healing process Mm. to where there's no guilt in the prior use of the image, for example, but there are these systems of authorities and people that are out there that are helping to direct the ethics and explain these things. And those things aren't as viral themselves, and it takes sometimes longer to make its way, but eventually it does. And memes fade out. They quite often follow a similar type of graph that a hit song would do that's overplayed on a radio. Like you Mm. have a song, it gets into everybody's mind and everybody's singing it and it really represents the feel. 
some of those continue on for ages and some of them die out real quickly and go away. And other dynamics that are happening in the day that help to sustain or to kill off what's better and worse. Would you say that a certain level of herd immunity arises? That it's hit its natural contagibility? That's not a word. Contagion. <laughs> but to hit its natural contagion, right? There's a certain number of people who are going to be open to this meme, the idea embedded in that meme, the circumstance around that meme, and then there's going to be a limit. And at a certain point, people after that are going to say, no, no, I'm not with that. So I'm not with Let's Go Brandon. I'm not with the OK sign. Yeah, those are all the various recognizable points that help determine the success level of the meme, for sure. One of my favorite memes that came out of the pandemic, I'll bet y'all saw it. It was a painting by Da Vinci of The Last Supper, and it had everybody pasted out of the dinner table except for Jesus was sitting there in the middle. And then up on top, each of their faces was in a Zoom conference. (laughs) It was entitled The Last Supper During Social Distancing. (laughs) It had the types of qualities that, to your point, would be really acceptable to everybody because here it involves a painting by Leonardo da Vinci, which has endured eras. So it's endured all of the ups and downs, and it's got a real sustained reputation. And so then to represent it in this way with a Zoom conference and that it's social distancing and what that means and with today's technology and just sort of like that mashup of those ideas, it was something that people around the world affected by the pandemic who also happened to be online. This is something that has all the types of qualities that can resonate with a type of a herd mentality that is much larger than a smaller herd. So it's really interesting to see how far can you go from something that's like Proud Boys, which is limited, whatever they adopt is going to be on such a small extreme, even though they can get it really popular, it's going to die off. You know, there's just no, there's nothing healthy about the qualities of it. So I think it's definitely all kinds of herd mentality scenarios going on. It's like the internet is primed for creating it. I like that example of the Da Vinci painting during COVID because it does itself, even as a meme, have a lot of different valences. So I could imagine someone posting that who is pro-social distancing, pro-masking, etc. And I can also imagine someone posting that who is making fun of the fact that we're social distancing and how ridiculous it is and how unnecessary it is. Another meme like that is the dog in the fire room, the This Is Fine dog. (laughs) Yeah, saw that. really emerged during the Trump years and interestingly used both by people on the right and by people on the left to acknowledge whatever your political affiliation, we're all sitting in a burning room right now, you know, and and like why it's burning and, you know, who who started the fire is not really important. We're all just this dog in the room trying to tell ourselves that it's fine. (laughs) That is something that I agree with you, that it reaches outside of a very small group, which is interesting, but also is interesting is that it can be used by groups that do not belong to one another in very different ways. Yeah, that gets right at this other aspect of the health of a meme is its sustainability factor, as opposed to being a meme that's tied into the particular day, it transcends out of that particular moment 
and continues on and people use it. And that is how you can really identify a more successful meme is not just an idea that simply gets passed on in a more popular way. But when you see them transform and being used outside of their original use and then continue to be reused, and this one about the dog in the fire is perfect to be reused again and again and again for everything small and large. It's timeless. I think that's what I was in the first segment trying to note about memes adaptability, that Mm. that's what makes memes survive is how adaptable they are. I think another good example of this is the distracted boyfriend meme. I mean, that is so adaptable. It's so useful. I imagine that one having a very long life. I have one like that that is kind of stuck in its time, but it transcended for a while also. It was a pepper spray cop. He was the cop from uh, UC Davis. The kids were having a peaceful protest and the cop just nonchalantly sprays pepper spray. (laughs) And so people took that out and they were like, he's spraying the constitution (laughs) and he's spraying (laughs) everything else. That one reminds me of the grumpy Bernie Sanders at the inauguration. Yes, yes, exactly. That particular meme, there was somebody who created a generator that just made it instantly simple. And that allowed it to flow and gave it a lot more success than it would have without that. It's a really great example of this because when you see people taking it out of that original context and then using it within their communities and their social environments... That's one of the strongest indicators that you really have a meme on your hands. Mm. I mean, that's the sign of the iteration that each time somebody gets that idea, they add something to it themselves. And it's not just a pure replication. Mm. And that adds such a significant level of power in retrospect to being able to identify what meme is, is really strong. It's been so great having you here today. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And as usual, we want to give our guests a chance to wrap it up with any final thoughts that you have on this topic or this conversation. Love to hear them. Well, you know, I just was really excited by this. And I think that what we're missing here is that this study is so important, actually. I mean, how information spreads here in the information age. And it would be nice to get more philosophy onto this. You know, usually philosophy is so great for getting to the bottom of these things and really getting to a definition, getting close or getting a lot further and then being able to explore these systems and understand. I know that it will help people understand the world a lot, like it'll be a very useful tool. So Drew, I want to add my thanks to Lee's. Noel has just announced last call. One does not simply <laughs> announce last call. <laughs> I think if you're the bartender, that's precisely what you do. <laughs> and so while we're sipping our last drinks, let me just remind the listeners that you could help us out on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. We have many levels that you could join at, and we would really, really, really appreciate your help. Right now, I need some help in getting home. All right, let me call a cab and let's get on out of here. Who needs a ride? I'm riding with you. I have more questions. (laughs) (laughs) 
What's a cab? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Good night, y'all. Good night. Catch you next time. (laughs) Oh, <laughs>